Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 104, Prefix Preferences. In this episode, we're going to look at an important development that took place within English during the 1200s. Not only did English start to borrow a large number of words from French and Latin, it also started to borrow a lot of the standard prefixes and suffixes used in those languages. And many of those new elements appeared for the first time in the Ancrenoisa, which was composed in the early 1200s. Those new prefixes and suffixes were embraced by English speakers, and soon those speakers were sticking them on the front or back of native English words. So over the next couple of episodes, we'll focus on those new word elements, and we'll explore their overall impact on English. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash historyofenglish. And as always, you can reach me by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. Now let me begin with a quick correction from the last episode. Last time, we looked at an important early Middle English text called the Ancranoisa, and I noted that the words journey and diet were used for the first time in that text. And I also stated that the two words are cognate, having derived from the same root word meaning day. Well, both words were attested for the first time in the Ancranoisa, but they are not actually related to each other. The word diet, as in food, is derived from a different root. Now, you may be familiar with another version of the word diet, as in an assembly. Well, that version of the word diet is the version that's cognate with journey, and is based on a root word that meant day. So, I mixed up the two versions of the word diet. Diet, as in food, did appear for the first time in the Ancrenoisa, and Diet, as in an assembly, is cognate with the word journey, but the two versions of diet are otherwise unrelated. So with that correction out of the way, let's turn to this episode, and the changing role of prefixes and suffixes in the early 1200s. Last time, as I explored the Ancrenoisa, I noted that a quick review of that text reveals a language that looks a lot more like modern English than most earlier manuscripts. That's partly because it contains fewer Old English words that have disappeared from the language, and it contains more loan words that we still use in modern English. It's also because the syntax or word order is closer to modern English. But one of the things that really stands out as you look over the text is that there are lots of words with familiar prefixes and suffixes. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like an important development, but if you look closely at a modern English text, you'll notice that a lot of words begin or end with the same elements. According to some estimates, about one out of every five words in modern English employs a prefix or suffix. And most of those prefixes and suffixes were borrowed from French, Latin, or Greek. They came into English attached to various loanwords. And since the Ancrenoisa has a lot of loanwords that were used for the first time, that text also gives us the first widespread use of a lot of new prefixes and suffixes. Now, that's not to say that prefixes and suffixes were new. Old English had them, too. 
and some of them are actually related to the ones used in Latin and French and Greek, having come from the same Indo-European roots. But during this period, a lot of those Old English prefixes and suffixes started to fall out of use. Some disappeared altogether. Some survived, but only as a part of older words that were already in place. They weren't used to create any more new words. And some lived on and are still actively used today. So over the next couple of episodes, I want to explore those developments. This time, I'll focus on prefixes, and next time, I'll focus on suffixes. Let me begin by noting that it's difficult to say exactly how many prefixes and suffixes there are in modern English. Some are very common, but many are obscure and only exist in a few words. And in modern English, we're not limited to just one prefix or suffix. We can keep adding them to the beginning or end of words to create new words. Let me give you an example. I noted that a lot of these elements came in from French. And we saw in earlier episodes that the words France and French are derived from the name of the Franks, who founded the Frankish kingdom, which became modern-day France. Well, the name of the Franks also produced the adjective Frank, which meant free, since the Franks enjoyed certain freedoms within the Roman Empire. Within French, that word Frank, meaning free, was converted into a noun by adding the suffix ise to the end, producing the word franchise. A franchise was a specific freedom or legal privilege, and it entered English around the year 1300. Then, in the 1500s, English converted franchise into a verb by adding the prefix en to the front, producing the word enfranchise, meaning to set free or grant a privilege. Today, we tend to use it to refer to the privilege of voting. Then, in the next century, the prefix D-I-S was added to the front to create the word disenfranchise, meaning to take away a freedom or privilege. Again, usually used to refer to the process of taking away a person's right to vote. Then in the 1700s, that verb was converted into a noun by adding the suffix M-E-N-T to the end, creating the word disenfranchisement. So from frank to franchise, to enfranchise, to disenfranchise, to disenfranchisement, we just keep adding on those word elements to create new words. And appropriately enough, given that root word, all of those prefixes and suffixes were borrowed from French, which shows how important borrowed elements are to modern English. So let's begin our look at prefixes with some of the common prefixes that existed in Old English. As I noted earlier, some of these prefixes disappeared altogether, and some survive in older words, and some are still used to create new words. So let's take them in that order, and begin with one of the most common prefixes used in Old English, which completely disappeared in the Middle English period. And that's the prefix ye, which was spelled G-E in Old English. Remember that the G sound shifted to a Y sound in a lot of Old English words. So Old English G is often pronounced as a Y, especially before the front vowels. And here, that common GE prefix was pronounced as Y. This was a very common Germanic prefix, 
and it was found throughout the Germanic languages. It's disappeared in some of those languages, like English, but it still survives in others, most notably German, where it's still pronounced as G. In Old English, it had a variety of uses and meanings, and it was by far the most common prefix used in Old English. It's difficult to read a passage in Old English without encountering that prefix, often multiple times. Take, for example, the word sound in its use as an adjective, as in safe and sound. In Old English, it was yasund, with that y prefix. And it appeared in the exact same form in Early German, pronounced as gesund. It meant healthy or safe in both languages. By the current point in our story in the early 1200s, the y prefix had already started to disappear in the word in English. I discussed the ormulum and the bestiary in earlier episodes, and they were both composed in the late 1100s or early 1200s. And the word yasund appears as simply sund in both of those documents. And after the great vowel shift, the word sund became sound in modern English. Now, the word also survived in German, where it retained its prefix and continued to be pronounced as gesund. And in its sense as health, it formed part of a common expression that people used to wish someone good health when they sneezed. Of course, that word was gesundheit, and it passed into English in the early 1900s. So, sound is the English version without the prefix, and the gesund part of gesundheit is the German version with the original prefix still intact. Now, again, that ja prefix was once very common in English, and it could be used in a variety of subtle ways. Sometimes it's difficult to discern the exact sense in which it was used in a particular word. It could be used to provide a sense of togetherness. So to express the idea of several animals or other living creatures running together, Old English had the word yerunin or yerunin. To express the idea of dragging or drawing a group of things together, Old English had the word yedrag. It could refer to a group or an assembly. To express the idea of several people traveling or faring together, Old English had the word yefera, which meant a companion. And timber meant wood, and a bunch of timber could be put together to build a structure. So a building was sometimes called a yetimbru. The prefix could also be used to show a completed action. So you might inquire with the Old English word ask. But if you asked and got the answer, then that was described as yaaskian. So it was used where the action was completed. I've noted before that the word win meant to fight or struggle in Old English. But to complete a fight and emerge victorious was described as yawinan, since the fight was brought to a completion. And that helps to explain how the word win evolved from an original sense of fight to the modern sense of victory. Winan was to fight, and yawinan was to be victorious. When the ya prefix disappeared, yawinan reverted back to just winan, and was later shortened even further to modern win, with its current meaning. 
The sense of a completed action also contributed to another use of the ya prefix. It could be used as an intensifier. So think of the word tear. We can tear a piece of paper. But if we keep tearing it to the point that the paper is completely destroyed, we tear up the paper. We use that up as an intensifier to mean completely torn or destroyed. And if something burns to the point that it's completely destroyed, we might say that it has burned up or burnt up. Again, we use that up as an intensifier. Well, in Old English, instead of putting up after the verb, you could express a similar idea by putting ya before the verb. These were just a few of the ways in which ya could be used in Old English. But as I noted, it started to disappear in early Middle English. In some words and dialects, it completely disappeared, which is how yasund became sund and then sound. Sometimes it underwent a transition where it lost the Y sound at the front and just became e or e. So the prefix is often rendered in Middle English documents with a simple I or Y. So, for example, yasund was rendered as isund, I-S-U-N-D, in Layman's Brute. But by the end of the Middle English period, that shortened form, e or e, also stopped being used in most words. So today, this very common Old English prefix has essentially disappeared. But we do have some vestiges of it in a few words. You use those words all the time, and you probably never realized that they had an old prefix buried within them. A good example of that old prefix hanging on in a modern word is the word enough. The E at the front was originally this Y prefix. As I noted, in Middle English, the prefix completely disappeared in some words, but other words just lost the Y sound at the front. That's what happened here. The y simply became e or e. This word is also a good example of why Old English manuscripts are so difficult for modern readers, and how the changes in Middle English made the text much easier to read. In Old English, the word enough was spelled g-e-n-o-g, so it looked like it should have been pronounced ganog. But remember that the initial G-E was the prefix pronounced ye, and the G at the end represented the guttural H sound. So the word was actually pronounced yenoch. In Middle English, the ye became e at the front, and the G at the end was respelled as G-H. So we start to find the word spelled as I-N-O-G-H and E-N-O-G-H. So that spelling was very close to the modern spelling, and much more recognizable to modern readers. And over time, as that H sound disappeared from English, that G-H at the end started to be pronounced as an F sound, like in the words rough and tough and cough. And that ultimately gave us the modern word enough. But again, that E at the front was originally the Y prefix. That ya prefix also survives at the front of the word afford. The ford part of afford was originally forth, as in to go forth. 
And remember that you could use the yeah prefix if you wanted to express the idea of a completed action. So to indicate that something had moved forth to the point of completion, you could use the word yeforthian. Again, it had a sense of something accomplished or completed. And over time, the yeah prefix was reduced to just a, thereby producing the word afford. But it still had a sense of something accomplished. Over time, it acquired an association with financial transactions. If you wanted to make a large purchase, you had to work to pull together the resources to make the purchase. If you were successful in amassing the resources, you could complete the purchase or afford the purchase in the original sense of completing an action. From there, the word afford just came to mean the ability to complete a purchase. So today, when we say that we can afford something, we are literally saying that we can go forth with the transaction. And the a uh in afford is derived from the original prefix ya. The same thing happened with the word aware. The where part of aware meant to be watchful or vigilant. It's related to the words wary and warden and guardian. The general sense of the root was to watch out for. And in the word yewer, the ya prefix was used in its sense as an intensifier to mean watch closely or be vigilant. Over time, the ya prefix was reduced to a, and that gave us the word aware. Another word where the ya prefix has survived in an altered form is the word handiwork. The e part in the middle of handiwork was originally the ya prefix. Now, today, you probably think of the word handiwork as handy work, work that is handy. But if you think about it, that doesn't really make sense. How can work be handy? Well, it really isn't. That's just a modern interpretation of the word. Handiwork is literally hand work, work done by hand. In fact, the word was sometimes rendered as handwerk in Old English. So where does the E in the middle of handiwork come from? Well, as I noted, it's that old ya prefix. In most cases, the word work was rendered as ya work with that ya prefix to indicate work that was completed or finished. So that produced the Old English word handiwerk. But in Middle English, the ya was reduced to just e, and the word became handiwerk. But by the modern English period, that prefix was largely gone, and people no longer recognized the word e-work. They only recognized the word work. But they did have the word handy, which was an adjective formed from the word hand. So when they heard the word handiwork, they just assumed that it was handy work, when in actuality it was hand e-work, or hand work. Again, the E was a relic of the original prefix, which was attached to the front of work. The same thing happened with another word, and this word actually appears for the first time in the Ankrenoisa. That word is everywhere. And again, most people today assume that it's a combination of every and where, but it's not. 
It's actually a combination of ever and where. Once again, the E sound in the middle is a remnant of the prefix that was once attached to the front of where. So it was yawer. By the time the Ankrenoisa was composed, that ya prefix had been reduced to e, and the Old English word yawer had been reduced to iware. And in the Ankrenoisa, the phrase ever iware was used for one of the first times in English. This new word was also used in some of the related manuscripts of the Catherine group of documents that I mentioned last time from this same time period. So again, the word was ever iware, often rendered as two distinct words. But when the two words were put together as everywhere, people just assumed that the word meant everywhere, rather than its original ever iware. Again, the E sound in the middle of the word is a relic of the old ya prefix. So as we've seen, that old prefix mostly disappeared from English, and it only exists as an E or E sound in a small number of words today. But many other Old English prefixes survived intact, even if they stopped being used to create new words. One of those old prefixes that lives on in old words but not new words is be. We have it in words like become, before, begin, behalf, behave, belong, behind, behold, and so on. This was another common Old English prefix. In some ways, it was similar to the ya prefix in that it could be used in a variety of ways. In fact, it could be used in some of the same ways as ya. They could both be used as intensifiers. The B prefix was derived from the preposition by, by. So B could be used to indicate closeness or being surrounded by the action taking place. We can see that sense in words like behold and befall. It could also change the quality of a verb in a variety of other ways. Now, even though the ya prefix was dying out in early Middle English, the b prefix remained quite popular for a while. In fact, in some ways, b took over some of the space left behind by the decline of ya. Consider the word believe. The word can be traced back to Old English, where it originally had the ya prefix. In Old English, believe was yeluven. The word is actually closely related to the word love, and it meant to love an idea and hold it dear. By the current point in our story in early Middle English, the B prefix was already being used in place of the ya prefix, and the word yeluven was routinely being rendered as believe. In fact, Lehman's Brut uses both versions of the word, suggesting that they were somewhat interchangeable for a while before believe finally won out. The continued popularity of the B prefix can be illustrated in another way, another very important way. In Middle English, it actually became common to attach that Old English B prefix to newly borrowed French words. And that's fascinating because it's more evidence of how English and French were starting to meld together. In an earlier episode, I noted that the French word siege got this prefix, and that produced the word besiege. 
We also have specific evidence of this phenomenon in the Uncranoisa. The word sample is a French word. It's actually a variation of the word example. And the original sense of the word sample was much closer to example. It meant a fact or incident used to prove a larger point. It could also describe a person's behavior as a model for other people to follow. So it was sort of like when we say to someone that they should set an example with their behavior. Well, the words sample and example don't appear in English documents in their current form until the 1300s. But the Ancranoisa does use a variation of the word sample. It uses the word besampleth, containing the English prefix be and the French word sample. It was used in the sense of moralizing or setting an example with one's behavior. So, for a while, the be prefix continued to be used to create new words, even in combination with French root words. Even as late as the 1500s, new words were being created in this manner, like bejewel, bedazzle, bepuzzle, bespeckle, and so on. But that process didn't really continue beyond that point. For the most part, the B prefix stopped being used to create new words in early modern English. So when we come across words with that B prefix, they usually predate modern English. There were several other Old English prefixes that still survive in English, even though they stopped being used to create new words several centuries ago. I noted earlier that the old ya prefix survives as a in words like afford and aware. Well, lots of other words have an a prefix that goes back to the Old English preposition on. On was reduced to a spelled with the letter a in many of those words in Middle English. And that produced words like aside, alive, aboard, ahead, above, asleep, and so on. But again, this a or a prefix stopped being used as a prefix for new words by the end of the Middle English period. The Old English prefix to was common at one time, but it also fell out of use for new words. It survives in older words like together, toward, today, tomorrow, and tonight. The Old English prefix for also survives in a handful of words. Forgive, forget, forbid, forlorn, forego, forbear, forsake, and forswear. Those words can all be traced back to Old English or very early Middle English. For was still being used to create some new words during the Middle English period, but those words were all short-lived. The word for hang meant to put to death by hanging. The word for cleave meant to cut to pieces. For was even added to some French words, like for cover and for bar. But again, the for prefix eventually became obsolete, and it's no longer used to create new words in English. Now, all of the Old English prefixes I've discussed so far are no longer being actively used to create new words. But some Old English prefixes survived and are still used in word formation. By far, the most durable Old English prefix is un, used to express negation or the opposite of something. Not only is it the most durable Old English prefix, 
It's actually the most used prefix in the English language today. In fact, of the five most common prefixes used in English, it is the only one that's native to English. Even though the un prefix is very common today, there's something very interesting about its history. It almost disappeared in early Middle English as older prefixes declined and newer prefixes from other languages came in. But in the 1500s, as Middle English gave way to Modern English, the un prefix reemerged stronger than ever, and it was routinely attached to both native and borrowed words. Beyond the Old English prefix un, a few other older prefixes are still used to create new words in Modern English, and most of those prefixes are prepositions used to express location. So we still routinely use Old English prefixes like over, under, up, down, in, out, and so on. Of course, those prefixes also survive as distinct words in Modern English, so that may help to explain why they continue to be used as prefixes. So consider the word over. It's an extremely common word in modern English, and in Old English, it was also used as both a distinct word and as a prefix. It produced Old English words like overcome, overdone, overflow, oversee, overhead, overhear, overrun, and many others. And it continued to be used in Middle English to create new words. In fact, the Ankrenuisa gives us the first recorded use of several new words using that prefix. We find the word overtake for the first time in the document. And overturn also appears for the first time in the text. The document also introduces the word overcast, which originally had a sense that was similar to overturn. It also introduced the word overforth, which meant very far forward, but it didn't survive for very long. Of course, over is still used to create new words. Within the past century and a half, we have new words like overexpose, overextend, oversimplify, overprotective, and overachiever, as well as many others. This is also true with the Old English prefix under. In the past century or so, it has given rise to words like undercover, underdog, underwear, and underdeveloped. Other Old English prefixes that are still in active use include up, down, in, and out. Other prefixes like before, after, and through are sometimes used in new constructions, but they're pretty rare in modern English. We find them in more recent words like afterburner and throughput, which is the number of items passing through a system. Now, there are two other Old English prefixes that I should mention, mid and with. I mentioned those words way back in episode 52 when I was going through Old English. You might remember that the word with didn't have the sense that it has today. Today, it means together or beside. But in Old English, it actually meant the opposite. It meant against. And the word with was sometimes used as a prefix where it had that original sense of against. For example, Old English had the word withstand, which was literally to stand against. So to express a sense of togetherness, the Anglo-Saxons didn't use the word with. 
they used the word mid instead. And mid was also used as a prefix. It produced Old English words like midnight, midday, midway, and midriff. Now, in late Old English and early Middle English, the word mid started to decline in English, and that sense of togetherness was replaced with the word with. As I noted in that earlier episode, this change was partly due to the Vikings, because they had a version of the word with in Old Norse, and it had more of a sense of togetherness, since conflict between two opposing sides usually implies a close proximity to each other. In fact, the Ankrenoisa is one of the first documents to routinely use the word with instead of the Old English word mid. And it also continued to use the word with to create new words. The Ankrenoisa gives us the first known use of the word withdraw, and one of the first uses of the word withhold. As the Middle English period progressed, the word with largely replaced mid as a preposition when it was used as a distinct word by itself. So today we say, I'll go with you, not I'll go mid you. But when those Old English words were used as prefixes, the opposite happened. With fell out of use as a prefix, but mid lived on with a sense of the center or middle of something. So within the last century and a half, English speakers have coined new words like midlife, midfielder, mid-range, and mid-line. But again, no new words have been coined with the with prefix. And in fact, many older words that used with as a prefix have fallen out of use. Some of those older words have been replaced with words borrowed from French or Latin. With say, meaning to say or speak against someone, was replaced with the French word renounce. With speak, which had a similar sense, was replaced with the Latin word contradict. With set, which meant to set against, was replaced with the French word resist. And notice something interesting about those new words that were borrowed into English. Renounce, resist, and contradict. They all have prefixes, too. The French prefix re was used in renounce and resist and the Latin prefix contra was used in contradict. And that's really the important thing to take from this discussion. As English evolved over the Middle Ages, lots of the Old English prefixes fell out of use, or disappeared altogether, and they were largely replaced with new prefixes borrowed from across the channel. So let's turn our attention from Old English prefixes to those that were borrowed from elsewhere. And let's begin with that prefix re, as in renounce and resist. Of course, it means again, and it can be used to indicate a repeated action or a reversed action. It has its origins in Latin, and it was preserved in French. English borrowed the prefix from both languages. It made its first widespread appearance in English in the Ancrenoisa. And today, it's the second most commonly used prefix in English, trailing only the Old English prefix un. The re prefix was essentially unknown in Old English. I say essentially because some religious manuscripts preserved some Latin words in more or less their original form. One such word was reliqui, 
which was an early form of the word relic. It appears in a few religious documents written in Old English. But outside of some of these Latin terms used in religious documents, it appears that the re-prefix was essentially unknown in the common speech of the Anglo-Saxons. It isn't really found in regular use in English until the appearance of the Ancranoisa in the early 1200s. Several loanwords with that prefix are introduced in the text. That includes the first use of the word relic, which is the modern version of that Latin word reliqui. The Ancranoisa also contains the first recorded use of several other words with that prefix, specifically the words recluse, recoil, record, remedy, remission, and relief. So the various versions of the Ancranoisa really introduced that second most common prefix into the English language. Beyond the re-prefix, lots of other prefixes were also borrowed during this period as French and Latin words came into English. Those words came in with prefixes that were previously unknown, and initially they were just part of the words that were being borrowed. But over time, English speakers recognized these beginning elements as prefixes, as distinct parts of the words that were being borrowed with specific meanings. Eventually, English speakers adapted them to English and even used them to form new words. Most of these new prefixes could be traced back to Latin and or Greek. And very often, they had even older roots going all the way back to the Indo-Europeans. And as you might expect, thanks to those Indo-European roots, many of those borrowed prefixes were related to native prefixes used in Old English. In other words, many of those French and Latin and Greek prefixes had cognates within English. Consider the Old English prefix ye that I mentioned earlier. Remember that it was spelled G-E and was originally pronounced as G before the pronunciation changed to ye in Old English. Well, that prefix can be traced back to the Indo-Europeans, where it has been reconstructed as com. Remember that the Indo-European K sound shifted to a G sound under Grimm's Law. So the initial root word had a K sound, and that root word com meant near or beside. That was the same sense that the ya prefix had in a lot of Old English words. Well, that root also passed into Latin, where it created the prefix com, C-O-M, which was also rendered as con, C-O-N, and sometimes simply as co, C-O. And this accounts for lots of words that have a sense of togetherness, or more specifically, two of something. It produced words like coexist, codependent, coincide, and companion. In fact, I noted earlier that a fellow traveler was called a yefera in Old English, using the ya prefix. And Latin gave us the synonym word, companion, with the com prefix. And again, both of those prefixes are ultimately derived from the same Indo-European root, which meant beside or near. This prefix was largely introduced in the Ancranoisa, where it appears in the words comfort, consent, convent, and contemplation all used for the first time in English. The English prefix for 
also had cognates in Latin and Greek, and some of those prefixes can also be found in the Ankranoisa for the first time. For was derived from an Indo-European root that's been reconstructed as per. Remember that the Indo-European P sound became an F sound in the Germanic languages. So Indo-European per produced English for. The Indo-European root meant forward, so it could be used to express the idea of moving forward. But by extension, it could also be used to express the idea of being in front or first, or in some cases, simply near or beside. These various senses gave rise to the Latin and Greek prefixes para, which meant beside, against, or protection against. And it produced words like paragraph, parallel, and parachute. A parachute used the sense of the prefix as protection against. It was a device that provided protection against a fall. The same Indo-European root also gave rise to the Latin prefix per, meaning through, which gave rise to words like perform and perpetual. The sense of the root as in front or first gave rise to the prefix pro from Latin and Greek, and the prefix pre from Latin. Pro meant before or on behalf of, and it produced words like produce, proceed, and progress. And in the Ankranoisa, it produced the word profession, which appeared for the first time in English. The prefix pre produced words like prefix itself, as well as words like preview and precede. And in the Ankranoisa, the prefix pre appears for one of the first times in English in the words present and presumption. By the way, the same Indo-European root also produced the Greek prefix proto, meaning first. It appears in a word like prototype, and more notably for our purposes, we know it as a linguistic prefix to mean the first language, as in proto-Indo-European, proto-Germanic, and so on. All of these new prefixes started to change the English language. They changed the way words looked as more and more words adopted these common prefixes. And they also gave English a variety of similar prefixes to choose from. That's especially true for prefixes that were used to express negation, or the opposite of a given root word. As I noted earlier, English already had the prefix un, as in undo, unkind, unhappy, and so on and it remains the most commonly used prefix in English. But English ended up borrowing several new prefixes that could be used in the same way. And that helps to explain why English has so many prefixes today that basically serve the same function. According to most scholars, three of the six most common prefixes in English are used to express negation, or the opposite of a given root word. Among those three negative prefixes, un is the most common, but it's the only one native to English. The other two came from Latin. They are the prefix in, as in inactive, incompetent, and insincere, and dis, as in dissimilar, disfavor, and discontent. 
And once again, the Ankrenoisa provides some of the first uses of these newer prefixes. Let's start with the prefix in. It's the third most common prefix in English, after un and re. As you might expect, Latin in and English un are related. They are both derived from the same Indo-European root word, ne, which also gave us the words no and not. So all of those words that we use to express negativity are related. In fact, the words negate and negativity are also derived from the same root. The Indo-European root word ne acquired a vowel sound at the front very early on because it appears in a variety of Indo-European languages with a vowel sound at the front, including Old English un, Latin in, Greek on, Old Irish on, and Sanskrit on, all of which were used as a prefix to mean not. As I noted, the Greek version was on, but it was sometimes shortened to just a, and it was also borrowed into English. We find that Greek version in words like anarchy, anemia, amoral, and asexual. The Latin version came in as in, in. But that in prefix was sometimes altered depending on the initial consonant in the root word that followed the prefix. So in many words, it became M, I, M. In the Ancrenoisa, we find this new prefix in a brand new word borrowed from French, the word impatience. This same process altered the prefix to il, I, L, in words like illogical and illegitimate, and to ir, I, R, in words like irrational and irreconcilable. Again, those are all variations of the original Latin prefix in. So, these new Latin prefixes entered English beside the native English prefix un, and they could all be used to make a word negative or to indicate the opposite of a given word. And as these new prefixes became more acceptable, it probably isn't surprising that English speakers started to use them interchangeably. Take the root word able. It's a French word, ultimately from Latin. So if we wanted to make that word negative, and if we wanted to be purist about it, it should have the Latin prefix in, a Latin prefix with a Latin root word. And we do have that construction in the word inability. But notice what happens when we use it as an adjective. It becomes unable, not enable. We use the Old English prefix un with the Latin and French root word. And part of the reason why we do that is because the two prefixes were once interchangeable. In fact, inability and unability were both considered to be acceptable until the 1700s, when inability won out. So sometimes there's confusion over the proper prefix, in or un. But other times, we have to deal with a different type of confusion a confusion over the precise meaning of the prefix that we're trying to use. And this also happens with the in prefix. Obviously, the word in is a distinct word in English. By itself, the word in is an Old English word that meant the opposite of out. And we sometimes use that word as part of a compound with another word, as in 
inside, or indoors. So in those cases, it resembles a prefix. But that word also has Indo-European roots, and the ultimate root produced a separate prefix in Latin, which was also rendered as in. And this other in prefix in Latin meant in, into, or upon. So Latin actually gave English two different identical prefixes. One meant not, and the other meant in or upon. We have the latter in words like inquire, inflict, infighting, and inform. And this other version of the in prefix can also be found for one of the first times in English in the Ancranoisa. It appears in the word intent, which is recorded for the first time in that document. We also find this second version of the in prefix in the word inflame. In some cases, a person's passions may become inflamed, meaning that they have a burning passion inside. Or you might have a medical condition where a sore or blister becomes inflamed. It might lead to inflammation, another variation of that word. And something that's capable of burning up or exploding can be described as inflammable. But here's where the confusion sets in. Remember that we also have that other Latin prefix, in, which means not. So, inflammable can also be interpreted as not flammable. So, which is it? Does inflammable mean that something is likely to burn or not likely to burn? That's a pretty big difference, especially if you're trying to prevent unwanted fires. At one time, this word created a lot of problems in English. If you marked a substance as inflammable, how would the user interpret that word? Would he or she be careful because the substance could explode? Or would he or she assume that the substance was safe since it couldn't catch fire? Now, as I noted, the word inflammable was just an extension of words like inflame and inflammation. So it meant that it was likely to catch fire but people started to get confused by that prefix. They thought that it meant the opposite. Technically, if you wanted to say that something was not capable of burning, you would say that it was non-flammable. So inflammable for things that burn and non-flammable for things that don't burn. But you can see how easy it was to get those prefixes mixed up because they could both mean the same thing. Eventually, English speakers tried to clear up this confusion by dropping the prefix altogether, thereby creating the word flammable. Without the confusing prefix, the word flammable could clearly indicate that something was capable of burning. This new word was first recorded in the 1800s, and it seemed to solve the problem. In the 1920s, the National Fire Protection Association in the United States jumped on this bandwagon, and it called for using the word flammable instead of inflammable to avoid any confusion. The organization was soon joined by insurers and fire safety advocates who approved of this version of the word without the prefix. And in 1959, the British Standards Institution joined in. It issued the following statement on the matter, quote, In order to avoid any possible ambiguity, it is the institution's policy to encourage the use of the terms flammable and non-flammable 
rather than inflammable and non-flammable, end quote. So, as this anecdote shows, the multiple meanings of some prefixes can create confusion, and it sometimes requires English to coin new words to solve the problem. By the way, I got this anecdote about the word inflammable from Patricia T. O'Connor's book, The Origins of the Specious, so I wanted to acknowledge that source. Now, we've looked at two different negative prefixes, Old English un and Latin in. The other negative prefix that I mentioned earlier was dis, as in dishonest or disallow. It also came from Latin, and we also have evidence that it was entering English in the early 1200s in the Ancrenoisa. But in that text, it wasn't generally used with the meaning of not. It was used in a secondary sense as apart or away, and it appears in the words distinction and discord, which both appear for the first time in English in that document. The text also includes the word disturb, which is also recorded for the first time. I should note that English also started to borrow another negative prefix during this period from Latin and French, and it's actually very similar to dis. It's the prefix de, de. We have it in words like defrost and diffuse. It could also be used in the sense of down or away, which we have in words like decline, debase, and demean. Now, despite the similarities between dis and de, the two prefixes are not actually related, even though they both came in from Latin and were sometimes used in similar ways. Several words with this D prefix appear for the first time in the Ancrenoisa, including delight, depart, desert, devout, devotion, demure, destroy, and default. In most of these words, the D prefix was used in the secondary sense of down or away. I should also mention that English has a lot of other negative prefixes, in addition to un, in, dis and d and their respective variations. English also uses anti from Greek, non from Latin, mis from Old English as in mistake or misdeed, and mess from French loan words, which was usually re-spelled as miss after those words entered English. That's what happened in the case of words like mischief, miscreant, and misadventure. All of these negative prefixes give English lots of subtle ways to express negativity. For example, there's a subtle difference between misinformation and disinformation. And there's a difference between being unfamous and infamous. And there's a difference between having an inability and a disability. These subtle distinctions can be made today because we've preserved so many of these prefixes over the years. Anyway, the main point of this episode is that early Middle English saw the introduction of lots of new prefixes from French, Latin, and Greek, and they were quickly adopted by English speakers. But within English, most of those borrowed prefixes remained attached to borrowed words. They were not regularly attached to native Old English words. In early modern English, that started to change and some of these borrowed prefixes started to break free, and speakers began to use them with native English words. 
So we got words like rewind, renew, disbelief, preheat, engrave, and nonstop. All Old English words with borrowed prefixes. But make no mistake, for the most part, borrowed prefixes were mainly used with borrowed words. And that's still the case to this day. But Old English prefixes were different. They retained their flexibility, and many of them were routinely attached to words without regard to their origin. We find Old English prefixes attached to Latin and French words all the time, as if they had always been there. Words like unpopular, unchanged, unplanned, understatement, underachiever, outnumber, outclass, overconfident, overextend, overview, and so on. And speaking of overview... That's a general overview of the prefixes in early Middle English. Next time, in what is really the second part of this topic, I'm going to switch from word beginnings to word endings, and I'll look at suffixes. In many respects, the changes to suffixes over time have been even more substantial. So next time, we'll look at Middle English suffixes. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. 